You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit providencetx.org. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. So when you get there, would you please stand with me if you're able for the reading of God's word? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, Things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Man, it is is much warmer up here than it is in that office. It is frigid back there. If you're warm, just go take a little gander back there. You might feel better. Well, uh... Good morning. We're glad to welcome you here this morning. My name is Ty Gaston. I am one of the elder candidates here at Providence Community Church. Uh, It is such a joy to have each and every one of you here, and uh, we're grateful that you chose to worship with us. Um, I'm going to begin by praying for us, and then we will get into uh, our text on 1 Peter. Would you pray with me? Father God, what a joy it is to gather in your name. God, whatever we walked in here with, I pray that you would help us to lay it before you this morning. God, I pray that as your word is opened, that our hearts would be too. God, that you would open the eyes of our heart to see you clearly. And God, if there be any sin in us that would be holding us back, I pray, God, that you would reveal it. And you would not just reveal it, but you would resolve it. And so God, this morning, I pray that you would would help us to see you you would help me to speak and preach boldly. And God, that we would leave encouraged and empowered to do the work of ministry. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. So one of my favorite personalities in the New Testament is, uh, and, and some of you relate to this as well, is Peter. And mainly because I, just, I find that I just connect with him more often than not. And it's because, um, like Peter, I am also a people-pleasing risk-taker. <laughs> and if it, feel, it feels like time after time, Peter is willing to take the risk and willing to take the public fall. I mean, his motto had to have been, well, if I swing for the fences every time, eventually I'm going to connect. So 
I, so a group of us just got back from uh, this trip that we've been planning for years, a group of seven guys. We, we enjoyed playing golf together. And so for the past year, we had been eagerly waiting to go to Horseshoe Bay, uh, about four hours from here near Austin, to go play golf for three or four days together. And it, we had a great time. It was, it was fun. And one of the guys that went, his name was Nathan Warner. And he is one of the He's one of the most fun guys to be around. Just he's a joy. He's funny. Always, always makes me laugh. But one of the things that he would do, um, and he's just one of those guys, just like myself. He would always swing for the fences every time. And every time we would come up to a shot, we were playing on a team together. He would walk up and he, and uh, he would say, "All right, Ty, how far is it?" And I would tell him, "Hey, you know what? It's 125 yards." And he would say, "125 yards? Watch this!" And he would go up to it and he would swing. And sometimes it would work. And it was awesome when it did. And there are some times when it didn't. In fact, a lot of times it didn't. But nonetheless, it was fun. Now, Peter was the same way in his risk-taking. While it paid off often, it also came with a lot of heartache. There were several times where his hope was deferred, and it didn't, just, it didn't come out the way that he originally thought it would. In the, in the book of John, chapter 21, verses 1 through 8, um, you see this start to unfold in Peter's life. Uh, the disciples had already encountered Jesus in their homes after he had resurrected. Peter, um, he was frustrated with how things were going post-resurrection and his experience with Christ. He assumed that this would be so much better, but instead it was a hope deferred for him. And so what he did was he made a career move and he said, brothers, I'm going fishing, which Peter was a fisherman. So when Peter saying fishing is not like me the other night when I went with my brother-in-law and said, hey, you want to go to Lake Houston and go, go night fishing? No, it's not the same thing. Peter was a fisherman. He, he is simply saying, this is not how I thought it would be. I'm going back to my old job. And so Peter, this is a hope deferred. And instead of drawing near to the Lord, he drew back in comfort. He went back to his comforts thinking that his joy was circumstantial, his lack of joy was circumstantial, and that if he just changed his circumstances, then maybe his joy would come back. And my fear is this. I mean, can we, can we just agree that 2020 is one of the hardest years possible? I mean, I think we can all agree with that, right? I mean, there's no, I don't think there's anybody arguing against that. COVID-19 alone makes this one of the hardest years. Don't even get me started on murder hornets and meth gators. It's a real thing. Look it up. I had to. My fear is that the suffering that we experience, whether that be internal, battling depression, anxiety, fear, loneliness, or external, whether that be battling things like diseases or financial hardships, my fear is that this will cause us to self-medicate by choosing what is merely comfortable and not what is going to make us holy. My fear is that we will look for joy in all the places it is guaranteed to never deliver. My fear is that we will, um, when it comes to decision making, we will not ask, how is the Lord shaping this decision? But rather, we would say, we would ask, what is the easiest thing to do? My fear is that many of you are saying, if I just switch jobs, everything will be okay, like Peter. If I was married to someone else, I wouldn't experience heartbreak. If, conversely, if I was married at all, I would be happier. If I had more money, I would be more joyful. If I don't commit to being known by others, then I never have to be vulnerable. And by doing this, we are setting ourselves up for certain failure and heartache. You see, suffering comes for us in one way or another. Suffering is inevitable. It's going to happen. But the real question that we have to ask here today in 2020 is this. 
what framework are we going to begin with? These are the concerns that Peter's going to answer today. He's going to remind us that our joy doesn't have to be dependent on things around us, but rather our joy can be unwavering when we set our hope on God's great mercy, trust in God's refining heart, and long for God's greater story. Let's get to work. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And this leads me to my first point. Our joy is unwavering when we hope in God's great mercy. So Peter begins this letter uh, that he's writing to a bunch of different churches with God. In fact, he isn't going to begin with God, but he's going to set up, for, set up a framework for perceiving trials that you're going to experience. You see, Peter is writing to various churches that were enduring incredible amounts of suffering. And that this suffering, what, this suffering was not merely government-driven, but it was also local and social outcasting. That the unpopularity of Christianity was due to the fact that their devotion to Jesus above everyone and anything else caused them to no longer accept cultural norms. No longer did people uh, worship the gods of their empire, worship the gods of their city, worship the god of their jobs, or worship the god of their family. No, it caused them to completely change their lives. And so because of that, they were outcasted. Most people in this time uh, would have seen this as both familial and cultural betrayal. This meant that they would have been fired from their jobs, pushed out of their families, not accepted in certain establishments, and likely publicly humiliated. Some of you can relate to this in more than one way. And even though our suffering like this is a reality, Peter is going to show us that our joy doesn't have to be dependent on it. That joy always begins and ends in hope. And not talking about happiness. The, the silly thing called happiness is fleeting. It's, it's last, it lasts as long as the moment does. And it's here today, gone, not even tomorrow, gone today. I mean, I, you don't, all you have to do is just have children and have one Christmas where you give them toys and watch three days later that toy is no longer important. I mean, I remember the first time that I ever, uh, that it was my son's one-year-old birthday. And we, I mean, at, at the time, he was our only son. Uh, and we bought him all of these gifts for Christmas. It was the first one, right? You know, your first kid, first Christmas, you're, you're excited about it. You're like, man, I'm going to buy him everything. I'm going to waste a whole paycheck on it. Rent, who's, what's that? I don't care. Uh, but you buy all of these gifts, and we gave it to him, and he starts to open them up, and he gets really excited in the moment, and he goes to the next one, really excited in the moment, go to, go to the next one. By the time it's all said and done, the toys are sitting in the corner, and he's playing with the boxes. Why? Because happiness is fleeting. It's gone as long as the moment is, is there. But joy that begins in hope is long-suffering. Now, what do I mean by hope? Let's look at verse number three again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, why is this beautiful? It is beautiful because you and I are the only creation that God, that, that God created that willingly chooses to disobey God. 
Everything else in creation obeys God at his very word. There's no arguing. They do it because they know that he is their creator. Hebrews 1 says says that Jesus holds everything together by the word of his power, that he commands the storms. He tells a fig tree to die, and guess what? It does. Not a single sparrow falls out of the sky apart from God knowing. God clothes the grass and lilies of the field. Job 12 tells us that the beasts, birds of the heaven, bushes of the earth, and fish of the sea all declare the majesty of God. Creation itself is groaning for Christ to return. All of creation responds to, obeys willingly, and submits to God's creative order. We do not. We do not. We need to understand that the reason why God's love is so beautiful is because, his, because our sin was so great. We sinned against an eternal God. And listen, I know of, of several miracles that are sitting in this room here today, but the greatest miracle that has ever happened in this room right now is that God, according to his great mercy, has caused you and I to be born again, that he has taken us from darkness to light, changed your heart of stone to a heart of flesh. That is the greatest miracle that could ever happen. And listen, it's not his great fairness Fairness is getting what you deserve, and mercy is not getting what you deserve. Fairness says that we, the guilty, are punished, and that Christ, the innocent, walks free. The gospel says that Christ, the innocent, is guilty and punished, and we, the guilty, walk free. See the difference? The difference is that God didn't do what was fair. He chose love over fairness. And we should be praising Christ with the highest of hands because he chose love instead of fairness. Ephesians 2 affirms this statement, that we were dead in our trespasses but have been made alive together in Christ. It does not say a little dead. It does not say spiritually asleep. It does not say sick or that we just need a little push. We were dead. The Greek word here is nekros. It's the same word used to describe Lazarus in the the grave. And nobody, there's nobody that reads the story of Lazarus and thinks, oh, he was just a little sick. No, he was dead, like dead, dead. We weren't drowning in a sea of despair. We were already gone, and Christ reached down and grabbed us and made us alive together in him. But what does it say next? We were dead in our trespasses, but it says in Ephesians 2, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Hear that, friends. Even when you were. You already were. That was known. All sins that you have committed, that I have committed, were future sins on the cross. Even when you were dead in your trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. That by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Our joy is unwavering because Jesus was crushed on our behalf so that we would not have to be crushed under the weight of suffering. And Peter stays on course with Paul by reminding us that our new birth produces a living hope. That this hope colors everything that we do. That it drives us. Therefore, our hope cannot be in our job or our spouse or in finding a spouse. It cannot be in our health or attaining more success or money. These things do not make us alive. It is the living hope in Christ that does. Our living hope must be in the living Christ that rose from the dead on our behalf, conquering sin, death, hell, and the grave. 
But he doesn't just give us a hope for this life. He also gives us one for the life to come. Uh, and there is not only wait, unwavering joy on this side of heaven, but there's also one waiting for you. Verses 4 and 5 in First Peter say this. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Because we have been born again, we receive an inheritance that was purchased for us. Awaiting for us in heaven is a hope that we can look to. No longer will we uh, be ravished by the effects of sin or worry about relationships and the things failing us anymore. Rather, there is a place that God is preparing for us where no longer suffering will reign, but Christ will. Moreover, we don't have to worry about guarding ourselves because we are guarded by the power of God. We're not just guarded. We're guarded by the power of God, and he has the power to do it. That's incredible. The greatest remedy to fear is safety and security. And to know that you are guarded by the power of God is the most secure place that you could ever be. This is promised to us here. We don't have to be afraid of vulnerability because we are guarded by God's power. We don't have to fear being mistreated on this side of heaven because God's power is at hand, not ours. This assurance of hope is important for you and I because we, don't, because we do not have to despair when the, Lord, when the Lord commands obedience or allows suffering. If there is a moment in your life where the Lord is calling you to do something that you don't want to do, or allowing suffering that you have not welcomed. We don't have to fear it. Because the, when the Lord calls you to lay something down at the feet of Christ, you can do it with full assurance of hope that he is after your good. When you lose your job or a loved one, you can rejoice because God is after your good. We don't have to have the answer for why. We just have to know that God is good. When you do not trust God's hand or cannot see his hand, you can trust God's heart. He cares about you as a good father. Which leads me to point number two. Our joy is unwavering when our trust, when we trust in God's refining heart. Now, Peter just set the stage for viewing suffering correctly, that it is difficult to blame God for suffering when he was willing to suffer for you. John Piper says it this way. I love the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, not because they turn my life into a string of successes, but because they keep me from collapsing under a string of failures. The gospel allows us to experience suffering in a way that doesn't cause us to be crumbled. Because if we truly believe that Jesus is God and that he took our punishment on the cross, then we can trust that God really is who he says he is, that he really is Emmanuel, God with us, even in our sufferings, because he himself knows what suffering feels like. Now, we may not always know why we suffer, but we do know that our suffering is not pointless. Our suffering has a reason and is leading to our joy, even if we can't see it. First Peter uh, verse 6 says this, But in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Even though what we just explained is awesome and amazing, that the gospel is great, that Christ suffered on our behalf so that we don't have to, that Christ took our punishment so we can walk in freedom, even though that is great, awesome, and amazing, we do still have to live in the present where we will experience many trials. And by trials, I simply mean anything that causes pain that makes you question God, whether he's real. And if you have a trial, Peter reminds us, even though this is hard to hear, and maybe you're sitting in this crowd and you don't, and you don't, you're not ready to hear this, uh, and that's okay. 
but I just want you to know that it's shelve it for later because God is after your good. That even if you have a trial, Peter reminds us that it's necessary. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane. We talked about it last week. We'll refer it again now where Jesus is in the garden at his worst point and is asking God, if, it is, if you are able, remove this cup of suffering from me. If you are able. In other words, if there's another way, if it's not necessary, please take it away. But nonetheless, not my will be done but yours. And we know what happens, right? He still suffered. He still was crucified, which means that it was absolutely necessary. I remember, I remember whenever I had to take a break from ministry a couple years ago. It was right after Hurricane Harvey. I decided there was too much going on in my life. I was doing so much. I could talk to you about it later if you want to. But I, I took a year off of ministry. I didn't know it was going to be a year. I thought it was going to be a couple months. And eventually, I, after those couple months went by, nothing happened. I was, I was frustrated. I was angry. I was angry at God. I was angry at people. And I wasn't able to really communicate or comprehend why I was going through it. I, I thought it was pointless. I couldn't understand why decisions were being made about my life without me present. But I remember my wife, my sweet wife, I remember that I was telling her that I just don't feel like this is necessary. I feel like the, the time I'm being punished for wanting to love God. And I was like, I don't understand why I need to step out of ministry. I love doing it. Why do I need to take a step outside? This is, this is ridiculous. It's crazy. It's hurtful. And I don't think I have to do it anymore. And I was like, it's not necessary. And she goes, well, it's happening, is it? I wanted a throat puncher so bad. I didn't, by the way. But so she, so she said, so I was like, you're saying that there's not an easier way that we could do this. We can't just have a conversation. We can't just like let me get in and ease in and do stuff like that. We can't, there's not an easier way to do this. And she said, well, obviously not, or it wouldn't be happening. We have to reject the notion that any trial is pointless. It devalues the power and sovereignty of God. Many people believe that if suffering appears pointless to you or me, then it must be pointless. Yet, just because you can't see one, a good reason, doesn't mean there can't be one. Tim Keller says it this way. If you have a God that is great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering, then you have at the same moment a God great and transcendent enough to have a good reason for not allowing it to continue that you can't know. We have to trust that if pain and suffering wasn't necessary, God wouldn't allow for it. And outside of Christ, for those that don't believe, suffering leads to either hopelessness or hostility. But Peter, he gives us another option. That whatever we are experiencing is coming from the hand of a loving father that seeks to shape our character, not destroy our life. He's not trying to hurt you. He is trying to heal you. Suffering doesn't disprove that we have a loving God any more than daylight disproves the existence of stars. Just because the sun comes out and the stars are no longer visible does not mean that they're not there. In the same way that just because suffering exists doesn't mean that God is not loving, caring, and know what's going on or that he's leading to, for your good. Too often, you know, and so, so Peter tells us that whenever it comes to trials, we need to look into our hearts, not outward. The, the tendency for us is that whenever suffering or trials come our way, we look out 
and either blame our circumstances or try to fix them, or we look up and blame God. But Peter says that we need to look in, not out. Look into our hearts. It's because he uses this word grieving. He refers to grieving in, in, in the nature of suffering. That too often we don't look in to address the pain in our hearts, but we look out to change our circumstances or even up to blame God. And not addressing these kinds of hurts that happen, these kinds of grievances that happen in our heart lead to sin. I mentioned comforts earlier. That typically whenever we experience pain, we want to draw back the way Peter did and go into our comforts. This can lead to people wanting to self-medicate with food, which is what I have done in my life. This leads to people wanting to self-medicate with alcohol, pornography, many different ways. We need to know that is what, go, what is going on in our souls and, and how to define it. Understand the grievances that are affecting our heart and mind. Not simply sweep it under the rug to be exposed and compounded by the next trial. And that's the thing. If you don't address it now, it will come out. Everything that is, uh, that is hidden will be exposed by the light of God. Everything. And so if it doesn't happen now, then it won't happen at all. We have to be willing to open up our hearts and see what's going on in there, even if we don't hear it. Listen, just because you don't hear it doesn't mean it's not there. Just because you choose to ignore it doesn't mean that it's not there. You, if you are grieving, if you are mad, angry, or sad at something that is going through your heart, God desires for you to talk to him. God doesn't want just a happy, willing child. God, is, God desires to hear from you regardless. If you are grieving in your heart, it is your responsibility. And I dare say God's delight for you to come to him. You have a good father that, is after, that, is, that wants nothing more than to lead you to him and, and for you to draw near to him. Let's keep going. First Peter, verse number seven. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, although it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter explains to us that there is a testedness about the trials that we face and that it's similar to the smelting process of gold. So whenever you make gold, I don't know if you know this, maybe you do, but you put it in a fire and it's unrefined. And as the fire begins to heat up, the dross inside of that gold, the impurities begin to come to the top and they wipe it off. And as that process continues, they repeat that over and over and over again. And the more you do that, the more pure the gold is. Pure gold will not be destroyed by fire. It will not. However, if it's fake gold, see ya. It will be destroyed by fire. In the same way, Peter is saying that through suffering, genuine faith, real faith will remain. And it will, it will become more pure, more real. Faith will be more alive through suffering. Fake faith, disingenuous faith will not. It runs. It draws back. Because I can tell you this, that even though Peter drew back to going fishing, I can tell you one thing that he never did after that moment that he met with Jesus on that shore. He never drew back again. Peter, at that moment, had real, genuine faith. He had seen the risen Christ who had met him in his own despair. And never again would Peter draw back. In fact, Peter would ultimately preach the gospel so boldly and advance the kingdom so broadly that Nero would kill him, would martyr him, that he would be martyred upside, on an upside-down cross. If there was ever a moment that he was going to draw back, it was going to be then. But he didn't because 
he was refined like gold. And that trial, suffering, is that for us. Suffering reveals what our true hope is in. In fact, Peter clarifies this a little bit more in verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. On the heels of him talking about the things that are very real and tangible in our trials and persecutions, he praises these believers for worshiping the God that they cannot see. In fact, he is saying that, that you will know that your faith is alive when you experience joy in the midst of suffering. So in other words, you will know that your faith is growing and your faith is strong if in the midst of suffering you experience joy. That it doesn't mean you have to enjoy suffering, but it does mean that you have an anchor of joy in the midst of your suffering. In fact, I would contend that the level of joy that you have is directly related to the faith that you have in Christ. That your joy will be unwavering when your faith trusts that God is refining you as you are and not wrecking your life. That doesn't mean that you have to have perfect faith, but it does mean that you trust God in his heart towards his children, towards you. Joy doesn't have anything to do with the outcome of our suffering. You hear that? Jeff... Just because the outcome is not ideal does not mean that you don't have joy. Joy doesn't have anything to do with the outcome of your suffering. It has everything to do with the object of your worship. If your object of worship is anything other than Jesus, then suffering, will, you will not last. You will not hold on. But if Christ is your object of worship, it doesn't matter what comes your way, you will never draw back. If you, do, if you worship Christ whom you do not see, your joy will be unwavering during the trials that you do see, which leads me to point number three in our last one. Our joy is unwavering when we long for God's grander story. First Peter verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 says this, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through, the, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. That these prophets had an intense desire to search for the future graces that were to come, that they were not serving just themselves. They weren't trying to seek the answers for themselves. They knew it was coming, but not for them. It was coming for us. That you and I are the heirs of all the hopes of the Old Testament. That's incredible. It's incredible to know that we are part of a grander story, that this, this should intensify your desire and interest into the things of God, and that we should be a part and long to be a part of God's greater story, not just to allow this gospel, this good news to terminate on us, but to be lived out and announced to the coming generation. That even angels desire to look at these things. Listen, it transcends the visual realm and into the spiritual, that angels that didn't even need rescuing, they didn't even need rescuing, they longed and were stunned about the glories and grace that was given to us in Christ. This means that studying and teaching others the gospel should color all that we do. Because there are those before us that labored. There are those before us that searched. Those before us that inquired carefully so that we could become the heirs of the, of the gospel of grace. What this means is 
that serving in things like the kids' ministry and the student ministry, that's why it's so important, that it's not just daycare. It's not just an after-school program for students. No, we should long to impart the gospel to the next generation because they will be the recipients of the things that we hope for. If our hope is in Christ, then our kids will experience the reaping of what we have sown. And I'll finish with this. I know many of you have come in here this morning confused, angry, sad, anxious. You, have seen, you may have seen your joy fade because of one thing or another, and I would say now more than ever, this has been the soil that that kind of pain grows in. Anytime you have an environment that encourages isolation like COVID-19, sin is likely running rampant. And in the process of this sin running rampant, we have forgotten about how deeply our God loves us. That it runs so deep that he was willing to suffer for us. That it runs so deep that he's willing to allow us to go through hard things in in order to experience joy. That it runs so deep that we would be included in a great, grand story that spans ages. Let me remind you, friends, that you have a God that is eager to forgive you. Eager to restore a relationship with you. If you have forsaken him, forgotten about him, or let him down, take heart. God is eager to repair these things with you. All of your sins and mine were future sins on the cross, which means Christ died knowing who you are today. He doesn't want a future version of yourself. He doesn't want that better version that just hopes to be a better Christian. No, he wants you as you are. Every sin was a future sin on the cross. And that Christ died knowing who you are today and settled the wages of sin on your behalf. This is where our true joy can be found and will never waver. When we don't have to question where we stand before God. Isn't that awesome? I, th- I think every time that we, in- we engage in some kind of sin or have some kind of worry or struggle, that we, we worry about where we stand before God. We worry about whether or not he's happy with us. We worry about whether or not we're, we're on good terms. We worry about whether or not we can come to church. Is this even genuine? Do I care? I can't go to home group. I can't read my Bible. Who am I to pray? I just... We worry about where we stand before God, but the truth is, is that God has already made that abundantly clear. That he has died on your behalf so that way you can have free access to the Father. The cross has settled it, and now you and I can rejoice in what the Lord has done, and that that joy will never waver. Would you stand with me? Father God, we we come in here with heavy hearts. We come in here with Worries, fears, struggles, some that are known by others, some that are not. But God, you know all. And God, we're so grateful that the cross is true for us this morning. We're so grateful that, that our sin is, not a, is no longer a, a barrier between us and you. But that when we trust in your son and your son's work, that we can freely walk before you. That you have, you have secured a place for us that you're a good father who welcomes us into our loving arms despite, despite our sin. 
God, we're so grateful that you don't treat us according to our iniquities anymore. But God, that we can run to you, the source of hope, the source of joy. God, that in today where everything feels like it's dead, you are a living hope to us. And you lead us and guide us to the wonderful joys that we have in you. So God, this morning, would you help us rejoice in the gospel? Would you help us celebrate with high hands the things that you have done? It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.